you have your copy of Scripture, we are in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, I'd invite you to turn there, Hebrews 12. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17 as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. This morning, we'll talk about finishing well together. Finishing well together. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As Americans, we have a strong emphasis on individualism. We are competitive in all that we do, and we want to always win. We often struggle with seeing our need for each other, and if you have a need for someone to help you, then we think that that's a sign of weakness, when in reality, our individualism is a sign of weakness. Novelist and essayist and farmer Wendell Berry had a unique image for the perils of individualism. As he was walking with his friend Wes Jackson, they observed a plot of Maximilian sunflowers, a nearly 10-foot tall plant native to the Midwest. Wes Jackson pointed to one particular plant that was growing alone, disconnected from the community of other sunflowers. Wendell Berry observed that although this solo individualistic plant had grown very tall, it was clearly not healthy. The blossoms were thick and heavy, so heavy that the branches were starting to strain and break under the weight. Berry noted that in one sense, the plant had succeeded as a solo plant. After all, it was growing and it was unusually tall. But unfortunately, it had completely failed its intended purpose as a Maximilian sunflower. These plants only thrive and give life as they grow in community, not in isolation. Barry concluded, we could say that achieving success solely as an individual was the plant's failure. It had failed because it had lived outside an important part of its definition, which consists of individuality and its community. A part of its healthy potential lay in its community, not just itself. For Wendell Berry, people today are often lonely and isolated because we've lost a simple biblical truth. True health spiritually, emotionally, and physically is found in community. And we've forgotten that to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. The author of the book of Hebrews has been encouraging his readers to run the race that is set before them 
with endurance. They need endurance to finish the race well. They need to endure God's loving discipline. To get discouraged and drop out of the race would be the wrong thing to do. Before he moves on from the subject of endurance, he takes time to let the readers and us know that we are not running this race as individuals. We are not competing against one another in this race, but rather we are running the race as a team. Last week, we spent a portion of the message talking about this idea that we have a responsibility towards one another in this race. We have a responsibility to help the entire team in this race, to finish the race. We know the saying, there is no I in team. What the author is saying is that in the body, which is the church or the local assembly or whatever you want to call it, we have a responsibility. Every single one of us has a responsibility, and that responsibility is to help each other overcome the hindrances that could cause us to drop out of the race. This morning, I want to look at how it is that we finish this race of the Christian faith well together. That is the call that we would help each other out. So first, let's see that we must watch over one another. We must watch over one another. In verse 15, the author of Hebrews is continuing his charge of commands. And look at what he says. He says, see to it. See to it. That's how he starts off there in verse 15. See to it. This is the only place that those words are used in the entire New Testament. There is a variation of it used in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, in reference to exercising oversight as elders. It means to take care or to watch over. In the noun form, it is used of a bishop or an overseer in the church. It's where we get our word episcopal. It comes from that, from that word. The author is saying that as believers, we must be vigilant about the spiritual welfare of others in the community of faith. So no one fails to receive the grace of God. It is pointing to the responsibility that every single member has in the body of Christ towards one another. We must make sure that no one drops out of the race. We must make sure that no one misses out on the grace of God. If someone's lagging behind in the race, if they have fallen down, then the one who sees it should go to them and help them. You turn around and you go back and you help them get up and finish the race. Because we're a team. Let me be clear. The first person who is likely to fail in the church is myself or yourself. So the first thing we do is we look at ourselves. We make sure that we are on track. And then we watch over one another. That is why Jesus said, before we can help our brother with the speck that it is in his eye, we must take the log out of our own eye. Notice he was not saying, don't help your brother, which is how we often hear that, that verse interpreted. Well, you know, pull the log out of your eye before you try to help me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that you don't help your brother. The main reason that we often do not help others in the midst of their spiritual struggles is we know that there are things in our lives 
that are not right. And so we're afraid that if we try to help them in the midst of their spiritual struggles, then they're going to point out our faults and say, well, you did this or you have this fault. We must understand the call is not for us to be spiritually perfect in order to help someone out. Uh, The call is to deal with the sin that's in our life before we help someone out. And we need to help others out that are in spiritual danger. If you had to be perfect in order to help someone out, no one would ever get helped. Because no one's perfect, right? Except Jesus. The requirement for helping someone else out in their spiritual walk is the requirement for you to be able to do that is that is that you are walking with the Lord. That's the requirement, that you walk with the Lord and that you're confronting sin in your own life. We're not told anywhere in Scripture that we have to be sinless before confronting sin in other people's lives. Nowhere does it say that. We hear all the time, well, judge not lest ye be judged yourself for the measure which you judge will become... Yeah, that that is true. That does say that in Scripture. Nowhere are we told in Scripture that in order to confront sin in a brother or sister's life, that I have to be sinless. That's not in Scripture anywhere. How many people would be restored in their walk of the Christian faith if we just used a little oversight? When you saw someone stumbling along the race, you just kindly and considerately went to them out of concern. It doesn't have to always be a rebuke. It doesn't always have to be, hey man, you are messed up. That's not what you always have to do. Sometimes you just have to give some advice. Sometimes maybe you suggest a book. Sometimes you pray for them. There are many ways to warn someone. If you see a fellow believer headed for spiritual trouble, you need to warn them. You need to come alongside them. You need to help them get up and keep running the race. You don't just ignore them. The worst thing that you can do is ignore them. That's not what we're called to do in Scripture. That is the absolute worst thing you can do. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians. Brothers, If anyone is caught in a transgression or any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you to be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Did you notice the language Paul used? He said, brothers and you who are spiritual. It's not just directed at leaders. It's not like directed at elders or the pastor. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul described what is meant to be spiritual. And then he tells those who are spiritual to restore one another. Well, what does it say in Galatians 5 when it refers to those who are spiritual? What does he, what does he mean when he says, you who are spiritual? It means as those who walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. They display the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, Paul is not saying that they are displaying the fruits of the Spirit perfectly in their lives. What he is saying is that those are characteristic of their lives. The fruits of the Spirit is what characterizes their lives by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, 
self-control. They should then, if that's what characterizes their life, they should then restore their brother or sister. They have crucified the flesh. They're not boastful. They don't envy one another. These are spiritual people. They're not super spiritual people. They're just spiritual people. They know they have to look out for themselves, as Paul puts it, because we have a propensity for sin. That's what we do. And for this reason, they come alongside in a spirit of humility and gentleness. They don't condemn their fallen brother, but they seek to restore him. Their goal is to help that person get back on track. Get back on the course to finish the race. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Because we have a lot of books written and surveys that we can take and all this kind of stuff dealing with church health. In fact, uh, we saw a video about IBSA, Illinois Baptist State Association. Illinois Baptist State Association has a whole wing that's donated to church health. But let me be clear. A church will only be healthy to the degree that its members who are spiritual help restore those who are weak so they stay on course in the race. If a church is not healthy, it's because that is not going on. It's because those who are spiritual are not helping restore those who are weak. So let me make it practical for us, okay? This church will only be as healthy to the degree that the members of First Baptist Church of Washington, Illinois, who are spiritual, help restore those who are weak so they stay on course. And while I believe my job as a pastor is to shepherd the flock, I can't do it all by myself. This is why relationships and connections are so vital for the life of the church, so that no one is left behind, so that no one is left out, so that we are responsible to help one another out and grow in faith and godliness. We are responsible to help anyone we know. If for whatever reason you are stuck and you don't know how to help someone that is in trouble, then by all means you can ask me. However, it is probably you that needs to come alongside that person, that brother or sister that you know is stuck because you have a relationship with them. Spiritual help is very effective when it comes from someone that already has a loving and existing relationship. So these words, when it says see to it, when he starts off in verse 15 by saying see to it, those words are directed at you. You have a responsibility. He's speaking to you. You come alongside and encourage and strengthen other members of the community of faith who are in jeopardy of quitting the race. Saying, you do it. You see someone struggling? Come alongside them. Help them. You see someone in sin? Come alongside them. Help them. You see, you hear someone gossiping in church? Rebuke them. That's what you do. You don't, oh, I, I didn't hear that. That's not how you handle things. You take care of things. 
You handle it because you say, you know what, I care about the body of Christ. And brother and, or sister, I care about you finishing the race. And we are in this race together. And therefore, I want to help you spiritually. That's what you do. Not only that, but we see here in these verses some warnings. We must heed the warning of dangers that threaten us. Give some dangers. There's some common dangers that threaten us as believers. And we're warned against those dangers. I believe that all spiritual troubles that we find ourselves in stem from a failure to keep the two greatest commandments, which is love God and love your neighbor. The things that, that, that are mentioned in these verses are not uh, exhaustive. It's not some exhaustive list of, of dangers that we must avoid. The author of Hebrews is very specifically concerned with these people abandoning their faith and making a return to Judaism. Therefore, he uses Esau as a negative example of a man who abandoned his birthright for a meal. And these verses lay out five dangers that we must avoid, meaning we must watch out for them in our hearts as well as in the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Danger number one. Falling short of the grace of God. Falling short of the grace of God. The idea of, of failing to obtain the grace of God means to, to fall. Being the extent of cutting oneself off from the contest. It means to miss out. In fact, it is the same verb used in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't believe that the author here is speaking of some sort of small deficiency in the Christian's life, nor do I believe he's speaking of a serious deficiency. Instead, I believe he is speaking of a disastrous outcome in which someone eventually comes, uh, uh, cuts themselves off from the grace of God. With what we know about Hebrews so far, I believe it's a definitive warning to those in the Hebrew church that were tempted to abandon Christianity and return to Judaism. They would come short. They would fail to obtain God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm fully aware that those who believe uh, uh, Christians can lose their salvation use this verse right here to back up their claim. However, Scripture clearly teaches us that those whom God saves, He keeps. We see that all through Scripture. We spent some time on that last week. The reason being, salvation is not a matter of human decision. If we decide to follow God, then we can decide not to follow God. That would be human decision. And we could lose our salvation. Or as I heard R.C. Sproul put it, if you could lose your salvation, you would. However, salvation is a matter of God imparting spiritual life into those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins. You were dead. And I don't mean like partially dead. I don't mean like halfway dead. I mean you were dead. I don't mean you were drowning in the ocean no, you were dead at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus dove in to the bottom of the ocean and breathed life into you. That's how dead you were. You were dead dead in your trespasses and sin. 
Salvation is a complete work of God. If I came to you and said, hey, you need to be unborn. It's time to be unborn. You would think, you're crazy. You're ridiculous. Because you can't be unborn. The same is true spiritually. You are a new creature through faith in Christ. If this is true, then God's power will keep you unto heaven. However, there is a danger in the church. And it continues to be a danger. And that's this. There are those who profess to be born again, who confess to be Christians, but God has never changed their hearts, and they are not. It is not that they have, have not received God's grace, and, or that they have received God's grace and then somehow lost God's grace, but rather they failed to obtain God's grace in the first place. The author has already warned them, already warned the Hebrew believers not to be like Israel, wandering in the wilderness. And even though they all came out of bondage in Egypt, not all were saved, but some fell in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 3, when we looked at that. Then in chapter 6, the author delivers a strong warning to those who had the appearance of believing, but in their hearts they were disobedient. He did the same thing in chapter 10. These people are trusting in works-based religion, not in the sufficiency of God's grace, nor in Christ alone, and they aren't saved in the first place. They don't know Christ. Every religion apart from the gospel is works-based and does not deal directly with the heart. I don't care what religion it is. Every religion apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ says you have to work your way to heaven somehow. You have to go through some sort of ritual. You have to keep some sort of rules. You have to make some sort of necessary sacrifice. Whatever it is, you have to do something in order to be approved. The gospel says no. You can't do anything. You see, every other religion appeals to our flesh because we like to think that we can somehow earn it. We like to think, well, I'm good enough. I did the right things. I made myself acceptable to God. Look at everything I've done. And we also like to congratulate ourselves on how good we are. You ever do that? Oh, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm better than them. Look how good I am. How much better we are than those that don't keep our little religious rules and rituals. Well, I'm not like that. He doesn't keep this rule that I keep. So I'm better than that person. That's what we like to do. But God's grace flips that on its head. You know why? Because it says no one is ever good enough. No one's ever going to earn God's favor. It says there's nothing that you could possibly do to earn the favor of God. No one is ever deserving of heaven. You don't get to heaven because you deserve it. Because everyone is born in sin. And while you may be able to keep some sort of external rules and rituals, God looks directly into your heart. He doesn't look at your rules and your rituals and how cutesy you think you are. He looks right at your heart. And the only way for anyone to ever be saved is to receive the grace of God that's offered at the cross where Jesus paid the penalty that you and I deserve. And that's the only way to be saved. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because you can't earn it. Jesus already earned it. The point the author is making 
is make sure you don't fall short and make sure no one else falls short of God's grace by trusting in their own goodness to get them to heaven. I personally want every person in this church to trust in God's grace in Jesus Christ as their only hope for heaven. And we all should feel that way. So we have this danger of falling short of God's grace. But then we have a danger. He gives another danger of being bitter and poisoning others. Of being bitter and poisoning others. The last part of verse 15 is actually a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 18. Moses is warning the Israelites about the danger of idolatry. and He does not want, want there to be any uh, whose heart is turning away. Today from the Lord, he says, our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, he says. This idea of of the root of bitterness is a reference to someone in the church who has turned away from God and will cause trouble in the church, defiling many if they're allowed to go unchecked. This person probably has something against God. They don't like something that God has done. Or how God has treated them. They're going through a severe trial in their life. And they think it's not fair. And they wonder why God is not delivering them from the trial. Rather than submitting to God in the trial. They instead grow bitter against God. And they think I don't deserve this God. And so someone else comes along. And they may say well well, I trust this other religion and it worked for me and so this person that is going through suffering thinks well i might as well give it a try and so they try the other god to see if it will work for them and often these decisions are emotionally charged and and so perhaps they try something else and they feel like it works for them and they're then in idolatry this happens more often than we think where we learn to depend on something more than we depend on Jesus. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a church or religion. What happens is idolatry spreads its poison in the church. And if the sinning person fails to repent, or the church refuses to exercise discipline, they will cause all kinds of trouble and they'll defile the whole body. As a member of the church, it is your responsibility to make sure there is no bitter root that springs up and defiles others by turning them away from God, especially in a time of trial. Listen, there are many things that cause people to become bitter. And it must be stopped before it takes root. Your root is hidden under the ground. It's just hidden. And it feeds the plant. And that's the point. Sin is deceptive. It's hidden, but it's deceptive in nature. When Scripture speaks of the heart, it is a reference to the inner person. And so it's important when we're going through a trial that we watch our heart. I found that most people do not make a cognitive decision to become bitter. Most people don't, don't sit there and they're, they're thinking this over. Okay, I think I'm going to be bitter. That's not what they do. You know what happens? 
they allow something to sit in their heart. And it just festers. Long enough that it takes root in their heart. The next thing you know, they become bitter. And they start to poison those around them. Do you grumble against God inwardly, thinking you don't deserve the trial? Or that if God treats you the way he's treating you, there's no point in following him? If that is your heart, then you are allowing yourself to become a bitter root in the midst of the church. Examine your heart. Especially when you're suffering, don't allow bitterness to get a hold of you. Don't blame it on others. Don't be bitter towards others. And especially don't be bitter towards God by, living in, uh, by failing to live in submission to God. So we have the danger of the bitterness. We have the, the danger of indulging in sexual immorality. When we first look at this, we would say that the test indicates that Esau was immoral. And Jewish tradition does support that, but the Bible never says that he was immoral. He did marry three pagan wives, but it still never says he was immoral. Since the Bible never says that Esau was immoral then I take sexually immoral standing alone and then unholy as a description of Esau. And this word immoral is the word pornos in the Greek. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's where we get our word pornography. It refers to any kind of sinful sexual activity. Sexual sin isn't something that's new. It's not like, oh, it just came about recently. It's been around for a long time. In fact, if we read back in the book of Genesis, we could read of Sodom where the men of Sodom wanted to have homosexual relationships with the angels that visited Lot in Genesis chapter 19, verse 5. Sexual sin. That's pretty early on. Then later on in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, we have a reference to heterosexual immorality when Lot's daughters commit incest with the father. We also have the rape of Jacob's daughter, Reuben's unlawful intercourse with his father's concubine, Bilhah, Judah's sin with Tamar, Potiphar's wife attempt, attempts to seduce Joseph. Ever since the fall of the human race, sexual sin has been and will continue to be a powerful temptation. The Bible is very clear that sex between a husband and wife is God's good gift within the confines of the marriage bed. One of the reasons God gave us marriage was to prevent sexual immorality. Within marriage, the sexual relationship is a picture of a union between Christ and His church. However, outside of marriage, sexual relationships defile not only those involved, but will also defile the church if it's left unchecked. Listen to me close. Before you think that this is referring to actual sexual intercourse, Jesus made it abundantly clear that to look to another woman or look at another woman with lust is to commit adultery with her in your heart. This does not only mean physically seeing that person like, oh, I see her on the street, but it goes for pornography as well when you look at a computer screen or your phone screen or some other screen and you lust after a woman, you are committing adultery with that woman in your heart, plain and simple. Now, ladies, before you think, oh, well, 
I don't have that to worry about. This application is not just to men. Some women like to read porn. And they lust for that person that they're reading about to be their husband. Or their future husband. That is not yours. Guess what? You just committed adultery in your heart. Sexual sin. That's what he's referring to. The first attempt in the church to, to, to do something about it should always be to restore a brother or sister through genuine repentance. That's what Matthew chapter 18 tells us. It makes that clear. But those who resist attempts to be restored and refuse to repent. So we go to our brother, we go to our sister that's in sexual sin. We say, brother, sister, you need to repent. We want to restore you. We, we, we want things to be made right. If they refuse to be restored, they say, I don't want any part of that. They're supposed to be removed from the church. And refusal to do so will defile the body of Christ. And it happens all the time in churches. All the time. Some man's out cheating on his wife. And people just look a blind eye. Oh, I don't. I didn't see nothing. Well, they do see it, but I, it's not my place to say anything. And the church just pretends like it doesn't happen. And that fellow sits there and he takes communion in the church. We just let him take communion. Nobody says anything. By the way, I'm not describing anybody here. So, I'm, I hope I'm not. But anyway. And, and, and they, they let him take communion and no discipline ever happens. And he defiles the body of Christ, the whole church. The whole church knows, or half the church knows what's going on, but everybody's too afraid to say anything. You say, well, pastor, he'll just go down to another church. Well, let him go down to another church. Let him go defile that body. Don't let him defile ours. We confront it. So beware of the danger of falling short of God's grace, the danger of being bitter and poisoning others, the danger of indulging in sexual immorality, and the danger of unholiness. Look at the description given to Esau. It's unholy. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau was someone who succeeded in everything that the world had to offer, yet he failed miserably when it came to the things of God. Think about Esau, man. Esau was a man's man. He was skilled in hunting. He was an outdoorsman. He was hairy. That's what his name means. He raised up a band of over 400 men that followed him. He had beautiful women as his wives. He fathered sons who became leaders and his fame continued even after his death. If we look at Esau by the standard of the world, Esau was highly successful in his family. Financially, materially, and even politically, but he failed where it mattered most. And that's with God. The birthright and blessing conveyed conveyed inheritance rights to the firstborn son with Abraham and his descendants. These rights and blessings dealt directly with God's covenant promise. By the time we get to Jacob and Esau... None of these promises have been fulfilled. And therefore, Esau could care less. Esau thought, I'm hungry. And this 
birthright, this blessing, it's worthless because we're never going to have our own land anyway. And he's not interested in some future promise of God. He lived in the here and now. And what he needed was some food. Because he was hungry. And he couldn't just go to local McDonald's. Therefore, he says, yeah, I'll give my birthright for a bowl of stew. He ate it and then went on his way like it was no big deal. Later on, Jacob cons his father, Isaac, with the help of his mother, out of the blessing that Esau was to get. But this time, Esau, by this time, Esau probably figured out the connection between his birthright and the blessing, but it's too late, and he wept and asked his father to bless him. However, the blessing had gone to Jacob, and Esau gets angry, and he wants to kill his brother for what he had done. However, he eventually gets over it and moves on with his life. Pay attention. Esau succeeded in the world, in worldly things. If we saw Esau today, that's kind of funny to say, if we saw Esau. Anyway, we would say, now there is a successful man. But he failed miserably, spiritually. And the point is, we must beware of unholiness. Scripture is clear, what is a profit of man if he gains a whole world and loses his soul? We must be careful about pursuing the things of this world to the extent that compromise that we compromise holiness in order to get there. Stop and think about it. In chapter 11, Moses is described as someone who considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and treasures of Egypt. Why? Because Moses was looking to the reward. Not Esau. Esau wanted to gain the world. The author wants us to see there is no use in gaining the world and losing our soul. And if we gain the world at the expense of holiness, we've made a terrible investment. The temptation is to get all that we can from the world, gain everything that the world has to offer in this life and neglect your soul and eternity. And if that's the route you're pursuing, you will drop out of the race. Beware of unholiness. Lastly, the danger of desiring the blessing more than desiring God Himself. The danger of desiring the blessing more than desiring God Himself. The beginning of phrase of the of verse seventeen, the beginning phrase should cause us to stop and think. It says, For you know afterward. There are some decisions that we make that have irrevocable consequences. Yes, God will forgive us of our sins if we repent. However, you can't undo some of the consequences of sin. There are some sins that sear our conscience. And when Esau lost the blessing, sure, he felt bad. He even wept over it. But you know what? He got over it. He moved on with his life. He became successful. And he probably looked back later and thought, why did I make such a big deal about losing the blessing? Life is good, and obviously the blessing did not matter. When it says, though he sought it with tears at the end of verse 17, that is most likely referring to him seeking the blessing, not repentance. He was seeking the blessing with tears. He was not seeking to repent with tears. 
In other words, he was not sorry for his sin. He was sorry he didn't get the blessing. That's what he was sorry about. He could care less about seeking God for the joy of knowing God. He was seeking the blessing that he could get from God. He only wanted what God could give him. He said, well, I just want what God can give to me. I want what God is going to give me to make my life better. And here's what I want us to understand. That there are many who profess Christ for the benefits. If God will give me a happy marriage, or if I will have good health, or if He will get me out of this hospital, or if my family life would be better, or if my lifestyle could be more comfortable, then I will profess Christ. They will come to church. They will worship God when convenient. But when things get difficult, or when severe trials hit, well, it's time to shop around. It's time to find something that's going to work. You see, they are not committed to God. They're committed to self. As long as they feel they can use God to get what they want, they will do it. And if God isn't working, they'll move on. Just like Esau. They desire the blessing. But they don't desire God. Don't you get it? God is the blessing. That's the point. He is the blessing. What about you? Do you desire God Himself? Can you say like the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you there is nothing on earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's God. My flesh and heart may fail, but God, you are my portion forever. In conclusion this morning, I'd like to give you some application as to how we apply this passage of Scripture. I try to do that throughout the message and then try to give you some at the end. So first, I would, I would ask this. Are you doing all you can to watch out for one another? Are you? Remember, this church will only be healthy to the degree that our members who are spiritual help restore those who are weak. Are you doing all you can? This is done in humility. But let me just be honest, we must do our part in watching over one another. And I'm not talking about preferences. I'm not talking about, oh, well, I got this preference and they don't have this preference, therefore they need to have my preference. That's not what I'm talking about. Like the color of your carpet or the pews or whatever. Those are not, I'm talking about real life situations, people really stumbling in their walk. 
Are you watching out for one another? When someone sins right in front of you, a brother or sister, do you just pretend like it didn't happen? I'm saying that sometimes we need to have hard conversations. I'm saying sometimes you need to call someone up or you need to grab someone and say, we need to talk and you need to sit down and you need to have a hard conversation with someone. You need to say, that's sinful. You can't be doing that. You can't practice that. It's a hard conversation. And you know what? They're probably going to be like, well, what about you? It's all right. To say, pastor said, you're supposed to have this conversation. Further, I'd ask this. Would you take a few moments this morning and do a heart check against these dangers? Will you check your heart? Do you know the grace of God through the gospel? Do you know it? Are you rooting out bitterness in your heart towards God to keep you from poisoning others? Are you intentionally avoiding indulging in the temptation of sexual immorality? Meaning, are you starting on the thought level to keep you from sin? Is your focus on eternity instead of the things of this world? Are you seeking after God and desiring Him alone instead of the blessing that He might give? Start in your own heart and ask these questions. Ask Him, is this true of me? And then I'd ask you to look around to those you know in this church. We're not a large church. Do you have a brother or sister who has fallen due to some of these dangers or for another reason? Do you have someone who is in danger of straying off the course? And I ask you, go back and help them. Help them get up and help them to keep running the race. Because we are called to finish the race together. Together. Not alone. What are you going to do about it? Here in this moment, we're going to sing a song, give you an opportunity to respond. If the Lord has touched your heart in some way, shape, or form this morning and you feel like you need to respond, I want to give you that opportunity. I'll be standing down front. If you need prayer, I'd pray with you. If you want to come and pray on your own, you can do that. You can pray in your pew. You don't have to come down. You can talk to me after the service. But I want to give you that opportunity to respond to this message this morning. Let's pray.